All right, it's great to be with you again today. And uh, it's fun listening to the announcements of the Christmas banquet. I always look forward to the Christmas banquet. It's great to see great traditions have continued, like the white elephant gift. My thought was, I wonder if some of those gifts are still surviving and are being passed along down here. Some are still around. Okay, all right. Well, that 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 fruitcake has probably earned, probably gotten a little uh, fur on it by now. So, uh, not sure how edible that would. Not sure. I'm not sure how edible fruitcake is in the first place. But if you like fruitcake, uh, sorry, but uh, it make does. That one's been around for a while. So uh, that has some age to it. It's aged. Okay. So anyway. If you're the lucky, if you're lucky to get that, uh, Lord bless you. We have been preaching the last several weeks through the book of Romans, chapter eight, uh, because in this chapter we find many of the things that we as believers really have to be thankful for. I mean, this. I mean, sometimes at Thanksgiving people give thanks for a lot of things, and we, we should be thankful for little things. I, I don't want it to belittle that at all. But uh, there are things that, really some major things that we have as believers to give thanks uh, to the Lord for. And um, we've seen in chapter 8 what many of those things are. Uh, the first eight verses dealing with the fact that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, that we have been declared legally righteous before a holy God, and that there is no sin you can ever commit uh, that would change that verdict because you stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then we saw that because of that, he gave to his children uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit who lives within us, who gives us the spirit not of fear, but the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And because we are children, he then made us uh, heirs of God. And we looked at our eternal hope as well last week. The fact that though we, because we are in Christ, uh, we, have, we have hope, uh, even, during, even in this world, which the Bible describes as groaning in travail. Uh, we live in a sin-cursed world. And, and we, because of that, we, we suffer. We deal with issues. Uh, tragedies happen all the time in this world. But he says the, the, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. So we have an eternal hope. But all that comes down to, to mean nothing if we cannot rely upon God's ability to carry this plan out. And when we come into verse 26 through the end of the chapter, we begin to talk about God's eternal plan. The fact that God's plan for us is, was not something that was just thrown together or perhaps will fall apart because it hasn't been thought through, but this is something that God has planned for us before time even began. And it, it, it should give us great comfort to know that we serve a God who is a sovereign God and a God who is in control. One of my good friends, David Ennis, who I know you've had here in the past, uh, I used to always hear him say this particular question. He says, has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? 
And uh, God is not taken by surprise. He's not taken by, by surprise by what happened to you this morning. He's not taken by surprise by what has happened in world events. None of these has surprised God because we serve a God who is all-knowing, all-powerful, and completely in control. And, and as God's children, we can take comfort in understanding that we are a part of God's eternal plan. And so this morning, what I want us to do is we're going to look at three aspects of this plan, um, beginning at verse 26. Now, we're going to look at a large section of Scripture today. Um, and so it doesn't mean that the message is going to be long because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hopefully buzz through it. But I don't want us to overlook some of these passages. I don't want us to shortchange some of these truths that we find in, in this passage. We're going to begin in verse 26, verse 26 and 27, where he says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now, in in earlier section of this chapter, we talked about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And at the time, I said that there are other aspects, ministries of the Holy Spirit, which we did not deal with. And, and and I think I even referenced these two verses. And for a while, I struggled with this, wondering why, why does God deal with the Holy Spirit in, in you know, verses 8 or through 17, and then come back here in verse 26, mention the Holy Spirit again. The more I've gotten familiar with this chapter, the more I understand this, this is really a logical flow uh, that Paul is following here in this, in this passage of Scripture because he's talked about, in the immediate preceding verses, uh, the hope that we have and, and the fact that we have this hope, but it's a hope that's, that's taken by faith because all we see around us many times are the trials and difficulties of life, and yet we, our salvation is based in the hope that we have that's based in Jesus Christ. So the reality is we oftentimes in this world Though we have hope that we take comfort in, and we take hope in the fact that God has an eternal loving plan for us and, and, and his people, the fact is that we don't always understand what that plan is. And so we take comfort in the fact that the Holy Spirit assists us in our ignorance of his plans. Notice what he says, the Spirit helps our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. There are many times as we are in this world waiting for the redemption of our bodies, the Holy Spirit groans for us with feeling too deep for words. Now he's not talking here about ecstatic speech or tongues or anything like that. Rather, the Spirit himself is intensely interceding for the saints of God according to the will of God. He intercedes for us because we do not know what to pray for. We do not know the perfect will of God. But he does because the Father knows the mind of the Spirit, and the Spirit then prays according to the will of God. There are issues that come up in life. There are things we go through, tragedies, and, and the context here, he's, he's talking about the sufferings of this present world, 
there are times where we just don't know really what to pray for. Maybe you've been perplexed when praying for someone who's very seriously ill. Do you pray for their recovery? Do you pray for God's grace to get through this time? Uh, do you pray for God's complete healing? What do you pray for? I don't know necessarily many times God's will in those situations. I don't know God's plan for them. I know the, the general idea of God's plan, and we'll see that spelled out here in, in, the, in the text, but I don't know the specifics of that plan for them. Or maybe it's a situation with uh, your job, and you're struggling with, you know, should I take another job? Should I leave? Should I do this? Should I move here? Should I move there? Oftentimes, we, we, don't, we, we, we don't really know concretely, this is for sure what I should do. But we can trust the fact that as we live in this world, the Spirit of God, who knows the mind of God, intercedes on our behalf. And I submit my prayer to the plan and to the will of God and trust that God will do according to his plan and to his will. Now that's a great comfort for us as a Christian when we learn to submit our prayer to the will of God. That is actually what Jesus was talking about when he talked about praying in his name. You know, a lot of times we say, in Jesus' name, we tack it on to the end of our prayer, and we, and we don't even think about really what are we saying when we say that. When we, are, when we are asking in his name, we are asking within his will. We're asking on behalf of Christ. In fact, one author put it this way. He says, we need, we need to learn to pray backwards. It doesn't mean we turn around or you know, face a different direction. But it means that we, we begin with submitting our prayer to the will of God. Rather than saying, in Jesus' name, at the end of our prayer, we begin our prayer by saying, Lord, we're seeking your will. Lord, I don't know what to pray for in this matter. But Lord, I submit to you, and I trust that the Spirit of God will intercede for me. Lord, we're seeking your will above all, above all else. And when I begin with that premise... I am asking in Jesus' name, and I am submitting my will to the Father. So we have the Spirit of God, he says, who in this world makes intercession for us because he knows the mind of God. We don't know, but he knows the mind of God, and he makes intercession for us according to the will of God. So that should give us comfort, first of all, that God does have a plan, and we can submit ourselves to the Spirit of God to direct our prayers and lead us as we, we seek his will for us. But secondly, we can take comfort in the fact that the purpose of God's eternal plan is always for our good. Now, you and I don't always know the specifics of what's going to happen. I did not know 20 years ago I would be the director of a mission agency in Arizona. I did not know that. I look back and I see how God has led and how God has directed. You don't know necessarily what God has spelled out for you in the next year, the next five years, maybe even the next day. But we can take comfort in the fact that the purpose of God's eternal plan is always for our good. Notice what we see in verse 28. 
The verse we quote, and many of you could quote this by, me by memory, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. It says, first of all, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Well, we get confused by that because what is good? What is good? That you be rich, that you be happy, that you have everything you need, that life is great, that there's no problems. That, that's in our minds oftentimes what is good. But a little bit later, we're going to see in the next verse that, that part of his plan here is that we be conformed to the image of his son. It's Christ's likeness that he has in mind that is for our good. He is more concerned with our holiness than he is with our happiness. And it's very easy for us to think of everything in terms of what makes me happy, not what makes me holy. And it is oftentimes those difficult times of life, the difficult things we go through that God brings into our life that does mold us and refine us to make us more like Jesus Christ. In fact, that's what is God's plan in working all things together. We take, you know, sometimes we, we use this verse and throw it about, and, and sometimes these words seem very cynical when they're spoken glibly. You know, someone's going through a trial, and you say, well, you know, God works all things together for good. You know, that's not necessarily a comfort to someone who's going through suffering and going through difficulty. It's true, but their understanding of that is not going to be appreciated because of the, uh, of the anguish and, and difficulty they're going through. But yet, I, I do know, before I go through these trials, I know that God does work all things together for good. And ultimately, it's for his glory. Ultimately, it's to bring, bring us into conformity to Jesus Christ, which will ultimately bring glory to God and will be to, for our good for all of eternity. Now, to accomplish that, he goes in verse 29 to begin to explain how God in his infinite knowledge and wisdom works. He says in verse 29, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And then verse 30, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. These are verses that theologians have wrestled with for ages, and, and, and sadly, many Christians get caught up in trying to try to understand the depth of the mind of God, or, or think they have understood the depth of the mind of God, and, and end up causing themselves sometimes great harm and, or discouraging other people. Let's look carefully at what he says. Whom he foreknew. Theologians argue over the nature of that word foreknowledge, foreknew. 1 Peter 1, 2 also says, he, likewise, that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. I think the reason 
we today in the church through the ages struggle trying to deal and understand how God's sovereignty and man's responsibility work together, I believe it's tied up in understanding what, what is the nature of this foreknowledge. Um, obviously, you have the aspect of one seeing the end from the beginning. Uh, God has a depth of knowledge that we simply cannot grasp. And, and the problem is today that theologies that people read and people commit themselves to are the attempt by frail human men to arrange and understand the deep truths of God in order to, in order to understand them in a manner that we can grasp. One of the best theological lessons I learned was from a seminary professor and it was on this discussion of the subject of God's sovereignty. And he put up two lists of verses. One list of verses strongly emphasized the sovereignty of God, choosing and election and his foreordaining all things. And then he put up another list of verses. Whosoever will, he's perpetuation for the sins of the whole world. He's the savior of all men, especially those that believe. Uh, and, and on, on a whole list of verses like that. And he made the statement. He says, if your theology causes you to wince at any of those verses, you've got a problem with your theology. Because we struggle with trying to, to, to blend together the fact that we serve a sovereign God. And also, we read the Bible's charges about human, man's responsibility to believe and to accept. Spurgeon was asked about this one time, the, the famous English preacher, and they said, how do you reconcile the sovereignty of God with the, with the will of man, the responsibility of man? And he, he made this statement. He says, friends don't have to be reconciled. In the mind of God, it is a perfect match. And I think it goes back to understanding foreknowledge. I may be wrong. I may be completely wrong on this. But it says, whom he foreknew. One side of the theological perspective sees God's foreknowledge as something as he saw something good in us. And because he saw something good in us, he acted accordingly. And the other side of the spectrum sees God's foreknowledge as, as predeterminative. In other words, him determining our actions, not pre-knowledge as much as predetermination. And the word does, itself doesn't help us because basically it means and is used to describe a knowledge that is before. But in the mind of God, it works, it blends. We, we tend in, in theology that people take one position here and this position over here, and, and sometimes the truth is, is there in the middle. So if I know, this is a very imperfect illustration, but the best I could come up with. If I know that you will get angry if I bring up a certain topic, I know there's a topic that just makes you boil. I, you're just going to, without even thinking, you're going to respond in anger. And I bring up that conversation, bring up that subject, maybe because I have to, because it's a, an important subject you need to deal with, or maybe because I'm a little ornery and, and I just want to see you lose your temper, okay? Now, either way, if I bring, I, I know that. Now, my knowledge is not perfect. It, my foreknowledge is not perfect like God's. But in my limited foreknowledge, I know how you're going to respond. 
and I, I bring that topic up, and you respond in the way that I knew you were going to do it. Did I make you sin? No. You had the choice to sin and respond that way. But I, I directed you that way. Well, that's a very imperfect illustration. Because when we get into the depths of understanding the mind of God and the knowledge of God and the sovereignty of God, uh, we're, we're trying to understand it with very limited knowledge and very limited mind. But the truth is that we serve a God who does and knows and has known since the foundation of the earth, or even before the foundation of the earth, what he was going to do for us in the person of Jesus Christ. And uh, it's easy for us to get caught up in the details and lose, lose track of the main idea, which is the fact that God is in control and he has a plan. His plan was and is still for those who are in Christ Jesus to bring them into conformity to his son, Jesus Christ, for all eternity and, and to save you and cleanse you and change you for the glory of God for all eternity. So it says here, going back to the text, whom he foreknew, he also predestined. That is, he directed, he, he determined, he, he arranged things for you to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And then those he predestined, he says, those he also called. Now, there's several different kinds of callings in the Bible. There's a call to ministry, there's a call to service. He's talking here about the call to salvation. When we talk about the call to salvation, there's, there's usually, theologians agree, there's a more general call. Every time the gospel is preached, men are being called. You are, if you're sitting here today, hearing the word of God being preached, God is calling you uh, to salvation. God's calling you to walk in obedience to Christ. God's calling you to be conformed to the image of his son. But then there is what some theologians call a specific call or an or effectual call, which actually leads to a person coming to know Christ as, as their savior. Uh, Again, going, going to, I told you this is going to be a, this is a hard passage, but going, theologians like to use a lot of terms. One of the terms that's oftentimes used is the term irresistible grace. I don't like that term because ir irresistible seems to make man a robot without a will. I, I like the term persuasive grace. God used persuasive grace with the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. Uh, when he appeared to him and, and he fell on his feet and he was blinded and he said, why are you kicking against the, the goads, the, the, the nails, the, the, the prods? And Paul then repented and, and, and trusted and believed in Jesus Christ. So whom he foreknew, those he predestined, those to be conformed to the image of his son, those he predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, he called. Then those he called, he justified, made just, made righteous. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So God's purpose for you in his eternal plan 
is that if you are in Christ Jesus, you will ultimately be glorified with him in all of eternity. And God guarantees that he, who he begins a work in, he will perform until the day of Jesus Christ. So there's no excuse for someone to say, well, I wasn't called. Yes, you were. There's no excuse to say, well, I, I didn't understand. Well, you could have understood. The fact is that it's not by our might, it's not by our strength, but it's by his power. So we have been foreknown, we have been predestined, we have been called, we have been justified, and someday we will be glorified. And the context of what he is saying here in Romans chapter 8 is pretty clear, okay? That we live in this world, we suffer in this world, we have hope. We live with hope that someday we will be with him, we will reign with him, we'll be heirs with him forever. Now that brings us to a third question, or a third aspect of this. And that is, how do we know that this will come about? What, what, if, what if God changes his mind somewhere along the line? Or what if something happens that interrupts this plan? Well, the truth is that we as a believer take comfort in the fact that God's plan, he assures us, beginning of verse 31, will be victorious. God's plan is not going to be gotten off track. It's not going to be taken off the rails somewhere. Uh, God guarantees that his plan will, will come to pass. He says, verse 31, what, shall, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Paul asks several questions here, rhetorical questions. And they, they, they really boil down to these three questions or thoughts. First of all, if God's for us, who can be against us? The fact is that God gave his only son. And if God gave his only son, will he not also give you everything you need to live for him? If God saved you, if he died on the cross to pay the price of your sin, if he redeemed you, if he justified you, if he put his Holy Spirit to live within you, is he just going to turn around and neglect you and forget about you? Will God let some other, will, will God let some other power, some other being uh, lead you into error and lead you into eternal damnation? He says, if God is for you, who can be against us? God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. He, he gave his very own son for us. If he has then given us those things, will he not give us everything else that is needed? So we serve a God who has promised to stand with us. And then the second question comes up here. Who will bring something against us? 
Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore, is also risen, who is at, even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Well, the reality is here that no one will. No one will. Who can, if, if we saw in the first part of Romans chapter 8, if God says there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, then who can judge otherwise? God is the judge. He is the jury. He alone can make the case against his people. Now we do know that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And his attacks oftentimes uh, are at our conscience or at, our, at the level of our minds trying to make us think we're not worthy and how can God ever use me and I've done this and I've done that and, 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 and God's disappointed in me and he hates me or this is not good or that's not good. Yes, yeah, Satan is the accuser of the, of the brethren. That's why we are told in the book of Ephesians to, to put on the armor of God, to take the shield of faith, that we may be able to stand against all the fiery darts of the wicked, because he's always throwing fiery darts at us. But God's the judge. And he says, if I am in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. So it doesn't matter what Satan says. It doesn't matter what lie Satan throws at you. If you are redeemed, have been redeemed, you are redeemed and will be redeemed till all eternity. You're in Christ Jesus. It is Christ who died. Yes, whether he says was raised from the dead, who sits at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. And if he is your advocate, if he is your judge and your jury, and he says you're not condemned, who can say otherwise? That is a, that, that's just a foundational truth of the Christian life. But I will tell you, Christians struggle with this, and you know this yourself all the time. Because you know constantly the feelings of Satan's charges against you, the feelings of inadequacy, the feelings of failure, the feelings that I have let God down, the feelings of... True, we, we oftentimes fail the Lord. But he says, even when we're not faithful, he's still faithful to us. And then there's a third question then. What can separate us from the love of Christ? Not only, not only the question of, of if God's for us, who is against us, or who can bring a charge against God's elect, but who then can separate us from this love of Christ? It's interesting, three times in these verses, beginning at, at verse 35, um, the apostle references the love of God. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long, we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Can the affairs of this life, the trials of earth, 
calls God to change his loving plan towards us. And he lists tribulations, distresses, persecution, famines, nakedness, peril, sword. Can any of these events on earth remove us from God's care? Or are they evidence that God has removed us from his care? God doesn't love me because I'm facing persecution. God doesn't love me because we're going through famine. I, I, I referenced to you last week the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. And it talks about how, in that great list of heroes of the faith, we saw men and women who did great things, who accomplished a mighty thing, stopped the mouth of lions, uh, endured fire, walked in fire, did, did, defeated great enemies, did great things. Then there are others who were torn asunder, sawed in half, died, of whom he says the world was not worthy. One was not more faithful than the other. It was just God's plan, God's direction for them. And the reality is none of those things, none of those things were evidences that God did not love them or had ceased to love them. None of them had gone out of God's love, and none of those things could take away the love of God. So I said, can any of these things remove us from, from, from God's plan? He says, no. In fact, we are, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We, 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 we more than conquer these things in Christ. But then the last question he begins to talk about, or area, is, well, what about spiritual powers? You know, what about angels? He says, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Man, that becomes just the triumphant ending of this great passage. When he says, well, well okay, the things of this earth, okay, it's trials, difficulties, maybe that can't lead us astray. But what about evil spirits? What about evil angels? What about principalities, spiritual powers, powers that we don't even have any understanding of? Maybe there's something not just in the present, but maybe there's something in the future. Maybe there's something in the heights. Maybe there's something in the depths we don't know about. Maybe there's, there's any other created being. Paul says, no, none of those things can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. You know, many times believers live in fear that somehow God is going to change his plan. Or for some reason, he's going to change what he has decided to do. Or, or maybe we're going to commit at the last moment some sin that's going to lead us into everlasting torment. And the truth of the matter is that cannot happen because the eternal God who sees the end from the beginning has planned for my glorification. He's planned for your eternal glorifications. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I hope we understand, and we need to grasp this as believers, that we live under the smile and favor of God. That's been the point of this whole chapter we tried to drive home. It's as a believer, it gives us the very reason, many of the most basic fundamental reasons we, ought, we need to be grateful during this Thanksgiving season. 
fact is that, that in God's mercy and his love, we have come to Christ. We are in Christ Jesus. And if you're in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation. Judicially declared righteous before a holy God. We do not have to continue in sin. We have, been, we have been freed from sin. We are not a slave any longer to sin. We have been delivered and freed to live under Christ Jesus. Towards that end, he's given us the Holy Spirit to live within us. Made us a new creature. Has given us victory over temptation and sin. And given us the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. We have a relationship with our Heavenly Father that's a family relationship. It's that relationship that is a comfort to us as we go through the sufferings and trials of this world. Knowing that we are, are, are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Knowing that we live for him and we live to be in fellowship with him. And even though we, we groan in this body not having yet received the, the, the full adoption yet, we know that sometime we will be with him. We will receive that, that, that complete resurrection, adopted body, where we will live with him for all eternity. And we know this is true. We know this is absolutely true because of the fact that God has planned it all. His eternal plan before the world began was to redeem a people for his glory and for his honor. And if we are in Christ Jesus, we, we see how he has led us, how he has called us, how he has directed us, how he has saved us. And the result ought to be simply a heart that gives praise to God. A heart that gives praise to God. The psalm here talks about giving praise to the Lord. Psalm 68, 4, sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides on the clouds. His name is the Lord, it's Jehovah. Rejoice before him. I know that Thanksgiving is considered by many to be a secular holiday. It's probably one of the least secular holidays in reality of all the holidays we observe. Obviously Christmas and Easter. But it's right up there with Christmas and Easter because it, it, is, it is those who know Christ as Savior who have most to be thankful for. If you don't know Christ, okay, thankful for your food, you're thankful for a house, thankful for all these temporal things that, that surround you, okay, those, those are important. Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you. And if you seek ye first the kingdom of God, this is what you get. Not just housing and clothing. Yeah, all those things are thrown in. But you get a righteous standing before God, the spirit of God living within you, a, 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 an eternal hope, and a confidence that God's going to carry out the plan. We, above all people, as believers, should be thankful people. And when believers become disgruntled and unhappy and complaining and griping, we of all people are, 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 are most off the mark because we are his people. We are his, his household. We are, we are his. 
We have, we have an eternal home. We have an eternal hope. We have him living within us. We have the right standing before God. We, above all people, should be, as the psalmist says here, singing praise to God, praising his name, lifting up a song to him, because his name is the Lord, and we rejoice before him. I trust the Lord will help us, enable us, this week, not just this week, but as we think of giving thanks this week, that we will focus our attention on giving thanks to the, to the one that we really, truly have to be thankful for, and that our hearts will be filled with praise and adoration for the God that we serve. Let's bow our heads in prayer.